Say goodbye to your credit card rewards. Greedy corporate mega stores, led by Walmart and Target, are pushing for a law in Congress to take away your hard-earned cash back and travel points to line their pockets. The Durbin Marshall Credit Card Bill would enact harmful credit card routing mandates that would end credit card rewards as we know it. If you love your credit card rewards, tell your lawmakers, hands off my rewards. Tell them to oppose the Durbin Marshall Credit Card Bill. Everybody in your crew identifies as either Big Mac Burger, McNuggets, or McCrispy Sandwich. But you're the filet fish Sandwich all day. That crispy fish, that savory tartar sauce, that melty cheese, that pillowy bun. Yeah, you get it. Every time. And if you love the filet of fish right now you can catch two of the classics you love for just $6. Limited time only. Price and participation may vary. Cannot be combined with any other offer. Single item at regular price. Ba-da-ba-ba-ba. Hello, everyone, and welcome to another one of these bonus shows we do here called Splits, where two people that don't necessarily know each other but have been on the show before are brought together for another conversation about music. Today we are going to be celebrating the 40th anniversary of a very important record, the titular first hardcore record, but a record that I think we've established on this show as being absolutely paramount to the development of not just punk and hardcore, but by extension, all rock music. Uh, we're hard, Hardcore 81, which is being reissued now by Sudden Death Records, which is, of course, run by today's guest, Joey Keithley. Now, Joey Keithley is coming back on the show, and when we started discussing him coming back on the show, or sorry, when I should say, Tristan, my brother and show producer and guest booker extraordinaire, thank you, Tristan, was discussing with him about coming back on the show. Uh, the same time, my friend and former guest as well, John Ross Bowie, sent me a message about how excited he was about Hardcore 81 being reissued and them coming through on tour and that he was going to go and see them and I was like, well, we got to put this together. And so here we are. This is a very fun conversation. Uh, John Ross Bowie, of course, has a absolutely fantastic podcast called Household Faces. I've talked about it before on the Brooke Smith episode, which he was the guest booker on uh, for this show. Uh, but he has done, uh, you know, a, a series of incredible interviews with, you know, a who's who of people from across stage and screen and TV, maybe not less stage, but definitely a lot of TV too, but the fantastic guest list, like it's unbelievable who's been on this show and he has some great conversations with them. And you can find that at all your favorite podcast stores. And Joey Keithley, of course, is reissuing Hardcore 81 on Sudden Death Records for the 40th anniversary. This comes with a big booklet he talks about in the episode a little bit towards the end. Uh, But also you can find uh, pre-orders now at Sudden Death dot com and while you're there you can also order some other great records as well but check that out and they also will be going uh some on some selected shows coming up soon which i'm sure will be you know every everything permitting of course but um if hopefully they'll be able to play some shows uh in the coming days for this record's 40th anniversary god Huge record, big record. Anyway, we'll, we'll talk about it on this thing. Oh, and if you want to check out the first appearance of John Ross Bowie, that is episode 207. And if you want to check out the first two Joey Keithley appearances, that is episode 254 and episode 317. Uh, all right, everyone. Thank you for listening. <laughs> 
John and Joe, thank you both for coming on the show. And uh, Joe, as I was just kind of explaining to you off air, the reason this whole thing came together is because when we first started talking about doing something around Hardcore 81, you know, obviously one of the most important hardcore records, punk records, records, period, ever from Canada, certainly, and ever in the world, from in my opinion. But uh, when we started do- talking about doing this, coincidentally, John wrote me the next day and was like, oh, my God. Hardcore 81 anniversary, got my ticket, can't wait to see DOA. I'm so excited. (laughs) And it was just like, I don't know, kismet, I guess, that like this would line up like this because John, of course, was on the show before. And and I know, you know, anyone should go back and everyone should go back and listen to both Joe's previous episodes and John's episode. But John loves punk rock and is a huge fan. And so the chance to get to have him on the show and kind of celebrate this record, you know, I was like, this couldn't happen. Uh, any more perfectly so thank you both yeah okay no that's excellent that's great um but i I I was honestly one of the first one of the first like there was a an initial crop of punk bands i got into um about five or six bands ramones came first but hot on their heels were uh were the dickies and doa right okay based on and it started with just like, oh, these are funny song titles. These guys have actually gone ahead and titled a song. Fuck you. I want a part of this. This is this is these these are my guys. And then I, I just the guitar work was so fun and so dynamic. And there was so much interesting stuff. And there, the liner notes were so much more interesting than anything that was going on in pop music at the time. And 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 there was it was some of the first stuff I ever learned about Canada, because I mean, as you, as you know, from touring down here, we know precious little about our upstairs neighbors. We're, we're woefully ignorant of, of what's going on up there and it's an embarrassment, but I learned so much about, about Canada from, from you guys um, just in terms of uh, general strike, the 51st state, um, the warrior ain't no more. And the way you guys were, were coping with the first nation issue up there, there's just so much I'm, I'm fanboying really hard. I'm going to shut up for a moment. I'm going to let this is Damien's podcast. Do your thing. No, no, no. Cause I, I'm just going to agree with you. I, I learned about Canada from DOA. Go on. Sorry. Uh, Dave, uh, Greg, uh, rest his soul. Uh, mm-hmm. Always used to say, you know, Joe, the job we're really doing is not playing punk rock. We are cultural ambassadors for Canada, spreading the good word of Canada to show people really what Canadians are like. Because, well, you know, when we got uh, places in the United States and we get up there and play, people afterwards go like, how the fuck did you guys, how is there even punk rock in Canada? There's just a wall of snow when you get to the border, right? You know, like showing in cartoons, <laughs> this blizzard happening, right? And I said, well, no, no, the Ramones came to Vancouver and we kind of figured it out from there, right? So, yeah, like there's not like, um, you know, there's certainly stuff in your lyrics that just wasn't taught in schools, you know, and like now it's gotten a lot better. I think the education about like sort of the real history, the people's history, as Howard's in, I guess, co- coined it, um, is kind of mm-hmm. coming out a little bit more in schools. Like I see in my kids' stuff that they're learning, but. Yeah, just like a lot of things that I I didn't know about as as a kid, like it was, and I was learning about it from your lyrics and learning about how fucked up the system was. And I think you know, to your point about being cultural ambassadors, like uh, Canada does a really bad job, John, of preserving or celebrating our musical history. Uh, uh, certainly, of punk rock bands that has yeah. changed recently. I think with the DOA with DOA winning uh, the Heritage Prize for Hardcore eighty one. Yeah, I was excited to see that. 
Yeah, but, yeah, but I really, cool. but, but for the longest time, I was, I felt like it was when I talked to people in America that I really got the full breadth of how important DOA was. It could be Duff from Guns N' Roses, or it could be uh, Ian Mackay, or it could be, you know, any number of people who've come on the show that, that I've talked to over the years that have said that Hardcore 81 in particular was like a, a real watershed kind of record for them. Right, well, it's an right. interesting piece of work because it's 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 it is it works as a rock record. It is a hardcore album, certainly, but those riffs are insane. Again, Dave Grigg, may he rest. Um, there's it's just a if you like big shouldered rock and roll with great riffs, then you should like DOA. You know, I found it, it very very accessible in that way. Was that something yeah. you? Because I know you guys were you you got your you have a you're a folk fan. And I, I know from some of your covers that you appreciate a lot of classic rock, but what did you grow up listening to? Um, well, I mean, when I was in high school, when I listened, I listened to Deep Purple, Alice Cooper, uh, Led Zeppelin. And, uh, but I also, the, the funny thing was, I didn't, it took me like, oh God, 30 years at least to realize that, that my older sister, about 10 years older, <clears throat> in the late 60s, when you know, I was probably like 10, 12, 13 or whatever, was bringing home all these like full protest records, you know, about the Vietnam War. You're talking Bob Dylan, Peter Paul and Mary, um, Woody Guthrie, Pete Seeger, all that kind of stuff. And uh, I didn't really realize that all that kind of influence from the lyrics and the music had kind of seeped in there, right? So, so we had the hard rock angle, of course. That's what we we're listening to. And um, you know, and I, I, when we were about sixteen, uh, then Dimwit. Uh, Rest his soul as well. Uh, bought home. Uh, he's joined this record club where you got like record. You got twelve records for twelve cents, and then you paid a buck a month, and you were supposed to pay the bill later. Of course, he never paid a goddamn dime to pay for it, right? But <laughs> the one he got was Black Sabbath Paranoid, and we put this on, and me, uh, Dimwit, and Wimpy, our minds were blown when we were about fifteen years old, going like, "Whoa!" Like, okay, because it wasn't like. It wasn't like the Led Zeppelin, right? And uh, so, and uh, by the way, when I, I one thing I did when I got to be about 19, because I lived on that place called Burning Mountain, and there's a guy who used to take his singles, and when the singles weren't popular anymore, he'd roll the records down this hill, and my brother and his friends would pick up the singles and take them home and play them, right? <laughs> they weren't popular anymore, right? So I said to myself, okay, and when I got a punk rock band, I was living in a house with a hill, and um, I took all my Led Zeppelin records out and I rolled them down the hill and left them there and they got crushed by the car driving back and forth. So <laughs> That's some heavy symbolism, man. <laughs> <laughs> well, it's one of the few music genres that does require a conversion process, right? Like, and I guess that's like, you know, I guess it's, it's, it's kind of like immortalized forever now in 24-hour party people where they're going through and tearing down the the rock posters off the wall. Right. I think, I think everyone kind of has to go through that when you get into punk rock where you have to be like, okay, everything I liked before is garbage. And then eventually you come back to it, but yeah, yeah, you the, the, yeah, no, I, I still like Led Zeppelin. So that's okay. <laughs> Not you have those records I still. <laughs> I don't have the records anymore, but I hear them on the radio enough. Right. So <laughs> yeah, yeah. Um, I kind of also, uh, you know, like reading up uh, just recently, actually the other day I was reading an interview with you where you talked about, 
uh, this protest that you went to in the early seventies and that kind of being like an, a political awakening, was that like political awakening kind of inspired by this music you're listening to the, the folk music and stuff? Um, it was like a uh, Greenpeace started in Vancouver mm-hmm. and they organized this thing. Uh, the American military is testing uh, nuclear weapons off the Aleutian islands, which is off the end of Alaska. Right. And uh, so Greenpeace went around all the high schools in the greater Vancouver area and uh, get, got kids, come on out on this day, leave your school, um, come down and march around, uh, um, march around the U.S. Uh, consulate in downtown Vancouver. And uh, so about, it was our day, and we didn't realize that it was all these different schools. We thought it was just us at the time. And we let, went to leave our school, and about 300 kids and our principal tried to stand in the driveway of the school, the parking lot, and put his arms out and tried to block 300 teenagers. And uh, let's just say it didn't work that well, right? So, and uh, yeah, well, and that was a singular thing. Um, like, I mean, obviously the stuff like the Vietnam War was going on, uh, nuclear arms race between um, the Soviet Union and America. Those were like daily topics of conversation. And um, so when this came up, I was already thinking politically and uh, this was like, it was kind of my first political act. And the funny thing was, it was really horrible. Uh, is at the front of the parade, Dimwit bought a bass drum. So at the very on the very front page of the Vancouver Sun, biggest paper in the province, um, was a picture of me, Dimwit, Wimpy, and Jerry Hanna at the front of this parade. And my dad got home at five, and he would religiously read the paper. And uh, so I saw this picture, and I knew I was like dead, right? And so I I grabbed the front section and hit it up in my room. And he came home and looked at the papers. I, he went, I'm fun section. I said, oh, it must be that paper boy again, Dad. You know, <laughs> not very good anymore. <laughs> anyway, anyway, um, sorry, I got up on these sidebars because it just reminds me. Oh, no, the, we love the sidebars on this podcast. Yeah, but that was like, that was the first kind of thing that, that happened. And uh, I think it really, beyond that, it kind of led up that. And then you guys, I'm sure you remember uh, Leonard Pelche. Mm-hmm. Um, was uh, the FBI were after him for a shooting uh, w- near Wounded Knee, uh, South Dakota. And uh, as a treaty uh, Indian, as they call him in the United States, our First Nations person, we call him uh, that escaped into Canada. And they're trying to extradite him uh, back to the U.S. to stand trial. And the FBI had gone in there like completely heavy-handedly. And uh, so those, that was the first um, benefit thing that DOA played probably like in March or April 1978 we've been going like two months somebody mm-hmm. said hey oh these guys these guys seem righteous going to play the Leonard Peltier that right so it I find the relationship between Vancouver and I guess maybe all of BC and America so different than anywhere else in Canada like it feels like like you know like from the DEA coming over to arrest Emery like years ago um for cannabis stuff or yeah. You know, like, like the, uh, it, maybe it's because I guess the position towards Russia, or maybe it's just because Vancouver's closer physically, I guess, or there's a, to the border, but it just feels like there is like this sort of like different kind of relationship. But I guess all the expats that move over, I know from covering cannabis for years, how many expats moved up there after the Vietnam war and, and during the Vietnam war. Yeah. Why do you think that was why Vancouver and not, not, uh, aside from slightly better weather? Yeah. And well, as far as like, um, um, the draft resistors coming up from the United States during during the war. Um, I think that it was a, a 
a quick, easy border to get to. And uh, Prime Minister Trudeau, the original Trudeau, uh, at the time um, had said they would not prosecute any uh, uh, U.S. citizens that wanted to come in. But why they ended up in B.C., I think there's a bit more counterculture in B.C. than there was, say, like way more than like Alberta mm. or something like that. And, and probably probably uh, as much as Toronto, even though it wasn't as big as Toronto. And then, you know, and then Quebec was just not, maybe not a place you go to if you're an English speaker anyways. Right. So, right. you know, mm-hmm. so the, yeah, I mean, that, that we were, uh, when we were 18, we moved up to the country, like all same crew of guys, Wimpy, Dimwit, Jerry Hannah and I, and uh, we worked uh, with guys uh, were drop resistors and uh, traded labor for chickens. Um, we tried to be uh, hippies on a farm right now. That didn't really work out very well or, or last very long. <laughs> so, yeah. <laughs> yeah, and uh, but I don't know. It's just like there was a lot of uh, I think the political content in BC, a lot of things in the 30s when um, uh, the Canadian government and the American government were definitely pre- afraid of the spread of communism. And uh, FDR obviously started the New Deal. The United States got people working again, building bridges, interstate highway, etc. Um, that it, it, there was a bit of a ruthless pursuit of people that were in unions across Canada. I mean, there was the, the march to Ottawa in 1935 that got subverted, never happened. They were threatening to take over the capital type thing. But in BC, the unions were a bit stronger. Like uh, my grandfather, for example, was a uh, uh, out and out socialist from Finland that was involved in the fishermen's union, right? And uh, you know, <clears throat> and they would, they would not take this bullshit. So it wasn't like they didn't get quite as broken. I think that's one thing. And then some of the universities were because we end up with sort of like a kind of hippie counterculture type uh, reputation. Then a lot of people um, went to universities to try and absorb that. I went to Simon Fraser University because that was the center of protest. And by the time I got there, that was all over with. It was becoming like a business school. So I, I quit after about six months, right? So like, you know, it wasn't the the, um, the hotbed of uh, troublemakers I thought it was going to be, right? So. Yeah, I think everyone hopes when they get to university, it's going to feel like Paris in 68, but then you get- Yeah, the- exactly. That, <laughs> you got that totally right. That, 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 was, that was what I was looking for. And it, 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 they have been uh, co-opted put that way yeah well that makes sense though i mean you look at like toronto is the center of center of canadian media center of canadians federal government it would make sense that you would be you would want to go to canada but maybe be as far as possible away from the you know if if you're if you're trying to leave uh find the counterculture of of uh the states you probably wouldn't go to dc so that that does track right right uh, and also, uh, John, like Toronto is called like Toronto the Good. And like we, for the longest time, has had, you know, we weren't open, stores weren't open on Sundays. You weren't allowed to serve oh, alcohol yeah. and all this sort of stuff. And it's like Toronto is like straight up dorky compared to BC on like the countercultural stuff. Like we had like Yorkville and there was like a great sort of storied scene from there. And uh, because of this guy, Rosie, there was incredible hash in the city. But <laughs> BC has always been the center of counterculture. Um, and Vancouver in particular, and Victoria too, I guess, as well. I have an amazing photo from the last time I was in Toronto of me standing in front of a massive piece of graffiti in, in Toronto that just says morals. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> Somebody just came up and tagged morals. <laughs> that tracks. 
and, and I, I grew up in New York City, so I was very taken aback by this graffiti tag. <laughs> very taken aback. But it's one of my favorite. It's like the most Canadian photo I have on my phone. Morals. Morals it's, is up to his mischief again. It's amazing. Well, John, have you, you must have seen the film. Uh, I, I know you have there, Damien, uh, Canadian Bacon. Yes. And they, yes. they steal, a, steal a truck and they've got all these horrible um, slogans, anti-Canadian slogans on the truck. And uh, the guy pulls him over, a uh, famous actor uh, like Dan Aykroyd or something like that. He gives him a fine because the insults to Canada are not in French and English. So. <laughs> and writes him up a ticket. That's a perfect joke. And then they go up driving down the road singing Born in the USA, right? So like, <laughs> we like our rules here in Toronto. That's for sure. <laughs> a very kind of different thing, but it, it is like, I don't know. And I think that's reflected also that, that a relationship with America and the punk scene too. Like when Nico case was on, she talked about how she felt like the Vancouver scene and the Seattle scene at, at her time was, was one scene. Yeah. I think uh, the bands developed pretty quickly out here in the, the punk rock bands. So, Cause we got, kind of got lucky um there was a people wanted to do videos there's a tv station that would shoot videos at midnight um ckbu and there were there's studios that weren't recording there's a little record label so a lot of that stuff got recorded and it got out pretty quickly so it kind of got like um the punk rock scene took off right away here was and there was some way to that was recorded and it got distributed too mm-hmm. and that kind of like let it go and then we started going down to Seattle a lot we'd like you know sneak across the border and get down there and play and I think the first uh first band we played with I think it might be Seattle's first punk rock band they were called The Enemy yeah and we played yeah this played this place called The Bird and uh so that was our first um wait Damien's going into the archives what's that yeah, Damien's go. going into the archives and, on, and... I didn't mean to cut you off but I want to show something to you yeah, dollars okay. to donuts. He has an enemy seven inch. No, I've got actually something even weirder, which I got uh, at Hits and Misses, and it is a uh, completely autographed by the second DOA lineup, seven inch. But it's actually a copy of the Enemies record, but it has World War Three in it. But it's autographed by all you guys. Oh, okay. But the, so on the tag it says uh, the huh? I think it belonged. It was bought. It says to the Enemies. Chuck Biscuit signed it to the enemy. So I think it was given oh, to the guy from the enemy. Okay. Oh, that's great. Okay. Yeah. But that's when you said that. It's so funny because yeah, like I've, I've always like, obviously don't have the enemy single as well, but I, I, you know, I've always had that connection between you guys because of this record in my head. So it's, funny. yeah. Well, I think the other band down there that might, might have preceded them uh, was the loot. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And you they mentioned the loot the first time you were on the pod. Yeah. Yeah. And with the, when they had come up, uh, we had this band called the skulls not to be confused with the Skulls from Los Angeles, uh, but our first band, the Skulls, that uh, we played in Vancouver, moved to Toronto, lived out there for about four or five months and played. Anyways, we played this like biker fest uh, outside of Vancouver out in the valley on a flatbed trailer in a muddy, rainy weekend. And the Lude came up and played, and we played. And it was like, uh, let's just say that entire weekend was an eye-opener. Right? Uh, <laughs> we were like 18 years old. We didn't know shit from Shinola. And then... Uh, Went and played for all these. It's like it was the Satan's Angels, which was the precursor before they became Hell's Angels, right? They liked us and gave us 100 bucks a day mm-hmm. and uh, all the beer we could drink. That was the pay. Not bad. 
Yeah. And that, and that's also like, that's also how a lot of the cannabis stuff got into Canada. That's why a lot of the strains came up because it was returning GIs that were part of bike clubs. And there was a lot of the, like sort of the motorcycle clubs and gang and like, you know, pre pre HA and all that kind of stuff that were like crossing the border as well. So it feels like that yeah. also, I guess, leads that sort of semi permeable border that exists out there. Yeah. I mean, people today can't imagine when they go to the border, when they enter the United States now, from Canada or even coming back if you're a Canadian, how different it is. Um, you know, it's just like, it seems the same on the surface. They asked a few questions, but it was like pretty loosey goosey in the old days. Yeah, no, it definitely feels like, and I think even, even now it still feels like a easier border to cross than some of the ones out here for some reason. Like people, obviously it's not, and people still get denied all the time, but it just yeah. feels like it, it's, it's, much more amenable to to crossing than crossing yeah i would put the ambassador bridge uh into detroit as one of the tough ones yeah 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 definitely. That, that is they're not very friendly on either side no so no i think that's because of negative approach and and all those bands ruining it for us way back in the day because of the windsor detroit connection <laughs> <laughs> That's well, that, great. The big thing in the States, the big thing in, you know, with Michigan people is that on their 18th birthday, they, they go South into Canada to get shit house. So you yeah, can't yeah. just blame the, the American punk bands. It's all Americans going down <laughs> yeah. from Michigan and embarrassing the whole country and then coming back shit house into whatever godforsaken corner of the mitten they're from. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. well we, we do that in ontario to, with quebec like there in people in ottawa go to hull because there's like the easier drinking age there too like it's i've a, heard of hull yeah it's amazing yeah. how this stuff tends to influence like youth decisions uh i don't know <laughs> joe did you ever hear about a band from seattle called the the uh tupperwares no it's this weird thing that i've kind of just heard about once again through doing the podcast and talking to people but it's like this weird band that featured uh, the pre it's pre screamers. It's the people that went on to form the screamers. El Duce played in the lineup. Nikki six played wow. in the lineup. Um, and also what's I'm blanking on his name. He passed away now, but the drummer from the blackouts that also played in uh ministry and REM bill. Oh, well, I just blanking. Yeah, on his I name. don't know. I, yeah. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. But uh, he, he also played in skinny puppy too. I think in an early lineup of skinny puppy at some point, but there, there seems like there was this sort of uh I don't know, like it, it's never talked about, but like it seems like punk hit Seattle pretty early on because the only songs I've heard from them are on YouTube, but it's it's definitely glamier, but it's it's certainly punk leaning and the aggression is there. Ah, okay. No, I um, you got me there. I never heard of them, right? So Bill the, Riflin. Bill Riflin, that's it. Thank you. Um they all went to the there's a okay. high school down there in Seattle that they all went to, and also Sir Mixalot went there too, and Duff McKagan. <laughs> It's like all the same high school. All the same high school. It's like a oh, weird shit. rock and roll. Well, high that's school. something else. Yeah, <laughs> yeah, that's great. Um, another thing that keeps coming up on this show, obviously, and we talked about it last time, was uh, DOA's importance to the DC scene, and it's amazing how you know. Once again, it's through doing this podcast, talking to people. There, it seems like DC was all about DOA and just didn't like the Misfits. You know, obviously there were some exceptions. Some people like the Misfits there, but like yeah. the theatrics of the Misfits didn't take. And it's amazing because sort of that that real, true, legit, you know, working class street punk DOA hardcore takes in DC. You know, it's funny how 
it's it's yeah like- it was uh like a, a, and a, a first time we got there we played some kind of um <clears throat> weird club it's called madams oregon and uh you know that was in 79 and then in 80 we got back there and then uh and the one from 179 madams oregon ian mckay's brother um alec yeah, uh, he always uh, says, uh, "Yeah, I've got the tape from that, and he, I've held it over Ian's head all these years, right?" <laughs> <laughs> and uh, yeah, which uh, Ian mentioned to me the last time we were out, we were out there in DC about a year and a half ago, just when COVID was kind of getting starting to take off. Anyways, but we played uh, this show in Arlington, Virginia, like you know, just south of DC, obviously, and uh, we're driving through the suburbs. And whenever that happened, everybody in DOA would look at the manager and go like, who the fuck booked this, right? And then we ended up at this high school. And it was, like, I think, Woodlawn High School. And this is high school that a lot of the main people or the known people from the D.C. scene went to, including Ian Henry and a bunch of others. And uh, and we just went up and played. And, and it, it, it um, had a big effect on them right because just kind of arrived uh, in town um uh like vagabonds right like we always did you know and we kind of play anywhere and uh, didn't care about money we just sort of show up and play and hopefully mm-hmm. uh, hopefully there's a pa and a mic there that worked that that madam's organ thing um because that's the bad brains venue that the bad brains would play at and, and kind of hang out that's really where they played their very first show too um and that's a oh yippie. okay and it, it was a yippies thing too, right? Right. Yeah, we did. It was not a punk rock club, right? Yeah, it was like a bunch of like I guess like kind of like a political kind of hangout thing, but it was like apparently run by yippies who were had early involvement with the Bad Brains, and that's another thing I've kind of come from talking to you as well. The importance of yippies to the early punk rock scene, where like they were like the, yeah. the bridge. It feels like. Yeah, it was interesting. Our uh, manager Ken Lusser. And uh, the Subhumans manager, uh, Subhumans from Vancouver, obviously, not UK, um, uh, their manager was also Yippie mm-hmm. as well. And uh, our manager got charged with starting the Gastown Riots, which is a famous riot here uh, in Vancouver in 1969, where, you know, police waded into the crowd on horses and beat hippies with clubs and stuff like that and tear gas them and uh, um yeah, anyway, in, in so, Gastown? That's such a pretty in, area. In yeah, there you go, right? And I think, uh, what, uh, well, another thing about my dad, come back the third time, I won't stay on this. Uh, I think he saw the news coverage and we're like, way to go. The police finally went out and took it to those hippies, right? Yeah, <laughs> I, yeah okay. So then my dad was uh, uh, sort of slightly to the right of Mussolini at times, right? So yeah, yeah. Put, it, put it that way. Um, God rest his soul. He, he did have some good points. Right? <laughs> um, not put nothing politically or philosophically. Anyways, um, but the yippies, uh, so they had the connection, Ken, David Spanner and Ken Lusser, and they got us on to this um, Rock Against Racism they had in Chicago uh, in 1979 on the waterfront right by Bear Stadium, right, Lincoln Park. And uh, Patty Smith was supposed to play, but uh, she didn't, so her band played, and we warmed up. And we, and we met all sorts of people, and they were really political, right? And they followed us on a bunch of them. They had these pieces of paper called, do you remember this there, John, that's called The Revolutionary Worker? Yeah, sure. It was like, yeah, okay. 
those once we had played this rock against racism, we had five or ten guys from the Revolutionary Worker at every single DOA show. They used to hand out the paper at the anti-nuke protest in the States all the time. And I got, I was handed yeah. my first copy in like the very early days of the Reagan administration. So I would have been yeah. like 12 okay. or 13. So- I was like, oh, okay. <laughs> I guess tonight once I start working. I don't- <laughs> <laughs> yeah, no, that they were an interesting bunch. But then that connection there with the Yippies into the rock concentration in Chicago then led to um, uh, us going to New York City. And there's this place called Number Ten Bleecker Street, which is like half a block from CBGBs. Mm-hmm. You know, we weren't famous enough to get into CBGBs, but these yippies and the head yippie, like I guess if there is a head yippie and they don't have like a voter or whatever, <laughs> Dana Beal um, was the guy who ran this Bleecker sort of uh, collective or squat type thing down the street from CBGBs, and that was our first show in New York City, right? So we made a heavy connection through. Through the yippies, and you're you're totally right that they they were sort of like dissatisfied what would happen to them because they said okay the hippie culture um, uh, had a, a great hope of changing the world, and then it just got co opted and you know business people were making money selling bell uh, bell bottoms and uh, peace sign bell buckles and uh, you know tie dye t shirts right so you know which is I think that's pretty accurate if you ask me, right? Because mm-hmm. the revolutionary of the revolutionariness of the hippie movement didn't last that long. It lasted about four years, and then it got drummed out and got co-opted, and people started figuring out how to make money out of it, right? Yeah, well, the sort of and disruptive so- sense of humor of the yippies you can hear in a lot of the punk that I loved. Yeah, you guys, there, there's like this real sense of like not just shit starting, but a a a wit that goes with it that the hippies were a little too self-important to latch on to maybe mm-hmm. yeah maybe took themselves a little too seriously right whereas mm-hmm. uh you know the punk rockers um hey but the great thing about punk rock it just took the piss out of everything right yeah and yeah. Um, to greater or lesser effect depending on who was doing it who's writing the songs and stuff like that but different stunts songs album covers single covers whatever right you know that that's kind of what attracted me to the whole thing in the first place that it was like a, a really free form of expression and involved a lot of different things like uh i think back to the early shows we did in vancouver we'd have one or two punk bands we'd have an experimental band we'd often have a reggae band and then we have kind of a a new wave band and to me, that was a great bill because you kind of got a little bit of everything of all these uh, and all the all the thrill seekers, bon viance and um, people who wanted to be in the scene. All 50 of us would meet at the same place. And uh, this would be, you know, but, you know, you know that it grew to 100 or whatever. Right. You know, it's like, you know, so but it had a lot of different uh, styles of self-expression. Right. So, yeah. You know, you mentioned David Peel, and I find him as <clears throat> sort of this really fascinating person. Oh, there's Dana Beal, but also David Peel as well. David, no, I Dana said David Peel was a hippie. Yeah, but uh, David Peel was a marijuana activist. Yeah, David Peel from a uh, different guy? The one from New Dana York, Dana Beal right? was a hippie. They're both in, from New York. Okay. So oh. Dana Beal was like... Uh, oh, I thought you said David Peel. Sorry. Yeah. <laughs> Yeah, it's a Dana Beal, B E A L. Okay, that makes sense. As opposed to David Peel. Yeah. Right. So, 
but David Peel had a great influence on us uh, when we were like 15 or 16 and we first got uh, introduced to marijuana and because um, uh, again, then we bought home this record and it was called uh, David Peel, have a marijuana. <laughs> and we, we listened to it. We were like, um, our minds were blown. Right. <laughs> Cause you cover, uh, you cover a song by him too, right? Yeah. I took two, two songs of his one was have a marijuana. Yeah, and the other one. Uh, so we end up with DOA song Mara, marijuana, marijuana. Yeah, yeah. I like marijuana. You like marijuana, marijuana, which is a direct uh, steal from uh, David Peel and Lower East Side. Uh, but he had another one. Um, Here comes the cop, all dressed in blue. He's after me. He's after you. He's got a gun. You better run. <laughs> <laughs> so I kind of combined the. Heard both those lyrics when I was about fifteen, and then twenty years later, I combined them into a song. He's in a he's in a movie called Potluck with uh, with the Lunachicks. Okay, as well too from uh, oh I guess cool. Year yeah, I've never seen it. Yeah, that'd be great. It's interesting. Yeah, yeah like, I, is he still alive? I'm not even sure. I think he's still alive. Actually, I was just trying to find out if he's actually passed away, but I believe he's still alive because I, I someone yeah he, someone heard an interview with him recently. They told me interesting character for sure. Yeah, and, and the connection between John Lennon and punk rock, I guess. Oh, that makes sense too. Yeah. Okay. Right. Cool. Yeah. Uh, the the weird connection between the those worlds, but um, you know, the interesting thing I find is that you always had like a, I don't know, and it, I guess it makes sense that you're now in government, or like a practical approach to politics. You know, I think a lot of times punk <laughs> can have a, um, you know, like a, a a heady idealistic view of politics, or you know, and sometimes just like a, a reactionary, you know, complete like abandonment of politics and then at worst i guess also like a complete embracing of the worst side of politics but you know you've always had like a, a yeah. very passionate you know progressive politic but it's always seemed very practical that's a lot of peas that's some great alliteration <laughs> i would also add pragmatic into that Ooh. as well not to make things more complicated oh, but <laughs> we've all got pea screens on our uh you know so we're, we're good here we're not popping too hard <laughs> But it seems like your your politics like was it was it always yeah, like, um, like obviously your lyrics are at different times but were you always someone who believed that like there was a way to do it through the system type thing or to like work within? Um, no, not really. Um, yeah, I mean, I wrote a song called "Smash the State." Oh, I know. <laughs> so, you know, kind of a yeah. So I, it was funny. Um, I always had a super interest in it, right? Um, and like, I think I told you before, I would, I went to, um, uh, SFU with the goal of becoming like a civil rights lawyer. And that fell aside pretty quickly once I ended up in the punk rock band, um, you know, fortunately I'd say. And, uh, so, but I always, uh, always had a, a deep, deep interest in it. And, um, uh, I remember collecting when I was a teenager, the water games going on and, uh, Every month, new, Newsweek or Time or something like that would come up with a new cover, and it was always Richard Nixon because he was in so much trouble. Mm. And uh, and I ended up collecting all those uh, magazines, like which I wish I had kept, but I didn't. They all got cut up and destroyed, used for like posters or whatever type thing. And uh, but I was really intensely into uh, following what was happening uh, around the world. Uh, in Canada and, and a lot in the United States, obviously, right? You know, being our our, our next door neighbor, right? So, um, so 
when somebody asked me in 1996, a guy from the Green Party phoned me up and there was a provincial election here in BC. And he said, uh, oh, hi, my name's Tom. Uh, I'm from the Green Party and uh, we're looking for a candidate uh, for your writing. Would you consider running for the Green Party? <laughs> and I said to him, do you know who you're talking to? <laughs> I'm Joe Shithead. I'm not some fucking political hack, right? And I hung up on him. Right? <laughs> and uh, and then about two weeks later, just something else came up about the election. And I went like, hmm. I, and I looked the guy up, phoned him up and said, sure. I'll, I'll be your guy, right? Well, what happened really in those two weeks? Gave me, I, I don't know something, because the election was coming up. So there's some outrageous, uh, it started with, I mean, there, there was an issue right in our neighborhood with this forest that the provincial government was involved in cutting down. And me and a whole big stack of my neighbors, like 1,500 people on this petition, were trying to save it. So I thought about this. This might be a way to save the forest if I got into government. Of course, I, I got my ass completely kicked and came in fourth, right? So, uh, but that was the start, start of the dream, right? So, it's, it, it, you know, because it feels like uh, it's just like you say, like you've written so many songs that are just like about complete rejection of it or about smashing it. Yeah. Like now that you're inside it a little bit, do you think there is a path? to change like do because we're, yeah, like, we're a I, real cynical moment yeah we're in a terrible terrible um uh time uh on the earth right with the you know covid is one aspect of it, but just the hatred and distrust and uh violence that is around the world i i would you know i would think this is the worst time we've been in that i remember like since the the civil rights effort and the Vietnam War in the United States. There was a lot of conflict there. Um, and that did end up changing some things along the way. But um, so right now it's a, it's a completely crappy time for the world, right? You know, injustice, uh, environmental degradation, uh, hatred, racism. Um, uh, the guy who runs China is like uh, modern day Adolf Hitler imprisoning millions of Uyghurs, uh, from the Western part of China. Um, so I, I think the thing is what we need is different kind of people in politics you know, that are not generally what we used to have or would be out here, we'd have a lot of car salesmen ran for politics or lawyers. Now, generally you get a lot of lawyers and a lot of people with a political science degree. Hey, nothing wrong with a political science degree, but does that qualify you to run something? I don't think so just because you study politics and think you want to become a career politician. Right. So um, I, I, I don't buy that. So we need people like, to me, you need people that are like, I don't know, truck drivers, um, uh, artists, uh, painters, maybe even guitar players. I can think of one. Right. So, you know, <laughs> <laughs> you know, so cause you get a different kind of, I think musician thing is unique. And I, I always say to people like, well, look, we have, uh, if you want to understand different cultures, a good way to do it is travel around the world. So I've played on five different continents. I've played in 47 different countries. Uh, so I've gotten a wide exposure to different people and different ideas and different philosophies. It doesn't mean they're all great. You know what I mean? But you got to take what you can out of what you learn as you go. You know, there's some life experience, I think, is an important thing. 
as opposed to just going to school, getting your degree, think I'm going to go work for a politician. Then 10 years later, I'm going to become a politician. I think that's really like a, not a great, great path. Some good people have come out of that path, but a lot of really average people with no great ideas have as well. How, how long have you been on the, on the city council now? Uh, three years. I'm up for re-election uh, next fall. Best like, of luck uh, there. October 2022. And, and how, I know one of your, your, um, one of your major platform planks has been moving Burnaby towards a, a greener economy. How's, how's that going? Well, we're not so much in control of the economy, but more uh, with uh, dealing with the uh, effects of climate change, trying to mitigate that, uh, you know, like making, working towards uh, houses and buildings that are zero emissions um, at the city, we're electrifying our fleet or getting our fire trucks and garbage trucks on uh, uh, to working towards game on like biodiesel, for example. Uh, we're produ- going to be producing our own like all alternative like fuel uh, taken from uh, waste disposal, like garden cuttings and stuff like that. Most yeah. of them down to fuel so the fire trucks have enough power to get up the hill, go put out the fire, that kind of thing. Um, so a few things like that and a lot of... Uh, uh, a lot of be really working to get people uh, EVs going and places for them to charge, obviously. Um, and the, that that's going so that's going pretty well. I mean, of course. And the big thing I'm pushing this fall is uh, really ramping up how many trees we're planting because we had this thing called the heat dome, and uh, Lytton, BC, for example, which is like 250 miles north of Vancouver. Uh, had the hottest temperature ever recorded in, in Canada in July, and it tied uh, Death Valley, California, for the hottest temperature. Jesus. Like, we've never, you know, I've spent lots of time down in Texas and Florida, uh, but I've never seen anything like that. It was a solid week of just the worst weather here in supposedly rain, rain Vancouver, rainy Vancouver. Yeah, we went right. uh, this summer, we went 52 days without one drop of rain. It was that we were in a complete drought. Um, so, I mean, as a member of the Green Party, we've, you know, we've been talking about this stuff for 20 years, right? There were 30 years before we were even, even actually a political party, right? But now the, so we're, now it's here and people are seeing the effects. So with this extreme weather, like, you know, forest fires, flooding, uh, et cetera, et cetera. It's like, it's, you know, so we're just going to get more of it, unfortunately. Right. But so that's a big thing we're working on at the city. And, and I do my part. I'm the chair of the environmental committee. So we have a, a big effect on that. Were there fires like forest fires in BC? Not, I know a lot like this, but like, I don't even remember any hearing about any growing up as a little kid. And now it seems like this year, especially it was. Yeah. Every year it's kind of gotten where we had really a horrible fire season in 2017 and 2018, where there was so much smoke from uh, not here in Vancouver, but up country. And then mm-hmm. the winds blew it down here. The people in Washington state, there was one radio station said, okay, all people in Washington meet us at the Canadian border, bring a fan we want to blow all the smoke back into Canada. It's not fair. It's come down here to Washington state. Right? So, <laughs> I mean, in a sort of a friendly gesture joke type thing. Right. But 
and the smoke just gets everywhere, right? So, and yeah. then I know my, I got lots of buddies in Oregon. They were like, uh, this summer, like getting the smoke from Oregon and also come up to California too, right? So the West has gotten really, really dry. I mean, they're disproportionately from what it used to be. Mm-hmm. And if you look at lakes, like uh, um, the one at Hoover Dam, whatever that's called, I forget. Um, and another one on Shasta Lake. Uh, which is on the border between California and Oregon on the I-5 highway. But DOA, we'd stop and we'd go swimming in there. That lake is like 40 feet at least, maybe 50 feet below the level it used to be when DOA first started touring down there. Yeah. Yeah, so we got some problems. Yeah, we we, we swam in it, and I remember watching it recede. It felt like every tour you could watch it just go down a little bit, and now obviously it's at the extreme of that. Yeah. Meanwhile, we're watching huge swaths of our coast down here start to erode. And, and yeah. you know, there's all sorts of people with, with beachfront uh, property who are questioning that decision. Yeah. Um, yeah. But it's, there's there's entire beaches that uh, that you used to be able to hang out and sunbathe on. I've only been out here for 20 years, but I've, I've seen it change. It's it's striking and upsetting. So thank you for the work you're you're doing towards that. There is something what just to kind of piggyback on what uh, Damien said earlier, there is something very practical about uh, the way you're you're conducting business here. And, you know, it's the it's the subject of the something better change documentary that you you mentioned earlier. But you compare it and contrast it to Jilla Biafra's mayoral run in the late 70s with, you know, yeah. everyone businessmen have to wear clown suits. I'm like, OK, well, that's adorable and it's a yippy idea. But, you know. How did your campaign go? How were you like, I am no longer Joey Shithead. I will now be your city councilman. Listen to me. How did that, <laughs> how did that go? You know, what were the, I don't spoil the documentary, but I want some taste. Yeah. Yeah. Um, well, I mean, because I've run a number of times in the area, right. Um, uh, I think people started getting used to seeing my name on the ballot. Like I ran provincially four times and then, uh, civically uh twice and i won on my second time civically because i finally i finally figured out it's a lot easier when civically than it is uh, uh with a senior level of government right sure. um and you know and most things that affect people's daily lives are done by by civic government anyways right so much more so than the big forms of government right so um so i would get people it's really interesting because i used to get people i go to the door knock on the door i you know like i I knocked on 10,000 doors, right? So, and just engaged people on the doorstep, right? And, and um, it would go like people would be like, a few people would go like, ah, where's your leather jacket? Where's your mohawk? Right? <laughs> you know, so, and I, being, uh, I don't know if the DOA fans think of me this way, but uh, being a polite person, at least I turned into one, right? So, maybe not so polite in the early days. Um, that uh, I just say, oh, well, you know, I left as a home. I decided to put on a suit so I could knock on your door and tell you why I can do a better job running the city than these guys or whatever, you know, that, that what you say on the doorstep. And uh, um, some people, the thing with the D, with DOA, uh, that helped me get elected. That was a big, big factor, right? Because the, the name recognition, and, and it wasn't because, you know, I had some people like, Oh, hold on. Let me get my album. I'll get you to sign it. Or, uh, you know, oh, I saw you at this concert. Like, there's a number of people like that. 
But more often than not, they weren't fans, but they had this begrudging respect because the politics that myself and DOA have been involved in over the years, because we, we kind of got this handle. Um, I know not so much anymore, but the, you know, up to like 10 years ago, it's like DOA, Vancouver's protest ban type thing, right? So so people understood that like, and they went, oh, well, you know, my, myself, they went, oh, that, this Joe guy is actually uh, serious about this, right? So it was like, um, you know, it, that paved the way with the ban, you know, and, and persistence too, right? And I used to get stuff like the great, you know, you get jackasses. I'd have a Green Party sign and the guy, oh, yeah, I know you guys. You like to smoke the green, don't you? That just, uh, I just come. I said, no, that's the uh, that's the marijuana part. You guys got this one wrong. <laughs> <laughs> so I mean, I, you run into jackasses, right? That, but you do everywhere in this world, right? So, well, yeah, like DOA is to Vancouver what Drake is to Toronto. You know, like it's it's really like the band that like embodies the cultural identity of the city. You know, like it's and it's funny because like we don't really we never really had that band in punk come out of Toronto, but you do see it in other cities, like obviously Minor Threat is kind of that band for DC for DC and like, you know, in the same way you could make the argument, I guess that, that black flag would be that band for, for certainly the, the, the beach communities, but you know, like there's, yeah. Thank you for not saying LA. Yeah. not Thank you for not saying LA though. Cause technically that's orange County, but go ahead. Yeah. 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 (laughs) That's the thing as soon as I was going to say it. And also I've had a lot of people on the show that talk about how black flag brought in the worst elements of, of, of the scene to the and so i'm like i don't know if i can really make the same sort of claim with with as you do with minor threat or doa to vancouver we or will, Drake to LA, at, speaking as a 20-year resident we will claim the germs yeah the germs yeah yeah but the germs never got yep. out there right like no it's they like, didn't no. that's the thing is like set when uh kevin seconds was on we we're talking about how you know even though reno is tiny in in relative terms they were on the map because they had like ambassadors going around and and kind of like championing their scene yeah in, in seven yeah. seconds and like vancouver the same way with with yourselves and i guess you know for a while subhumans until they stopped touring sorry you cut out there for a oh, second say, but, uh, it, i think I, uh, yeah sorry go on the comparison with reno and vancouver yeah no totally right we we had lots of friends that that was, we went up to Reno. Uh, that was a great scene. And again, it's never one of these. We met somebody at a parking lot at a mall, Tommy Borgino, original drummer for seven seconds. And uh, we followed him. We drove deep into the suburbs. And uh, again, the call was from the, the band guys. Ah, who booked this? Right. And the manager was like squirming at that point. Right. And uh, it was his show in a garage with about a hundred people in the garage and uh, we played, I held my guitar up and tried not to lose my teeth with the mic stand, right? That's these, this swirling um, swarm of hornets inside this garage. We're going mental with every song. Right. So, but I think, yeah, you get, you get uh, bands that do stick out on the horizon. I mean, I was kind of getting disconnected from our last thing, but, they go out and they spread the word and, um, and you get like their protest band. I mean, DKs would be that for like San Francisco getting yeah. back to that area yeah. era. Right. You know? Um, I absolutely. Right. So. Yeah. You're, and you kind of like, I don't know, kind of, you need that. Cause like also by the same token, you don't really, Las Vegas didn't really have that band, you know? And so there's all these great bands from that city that don't really get remembered in the same sort of way. Like you kind of need that band to kind of like, I don't know. I just, 
preserve the the culture of the scene it seems or something yeah and i think too that i mean vancouver uh you know well running a label here right uh um we still get the reasonable request for late point of stick stuff because mm-hmm. the point of sticks actually went out and toured mm-hmm. uh the subhumans went out and toured mm-hmm. so people know like okay it's not the uk subhumans but these guys were like a super great band as well from vancouver and uh and if the bands didn't take the initiative and go and travel, it's pretty hard to uh, make a name for yourself. And unless you're playing like pop music or you're signed to like a big label. Right. You know, and so uh, and we knew that Vancouver was like a backwater. Uh, the music industry was in Toronto, uh, Los Angeles, New York and London. Right. It wasn't anywhere near Vancouver. Right. We we're like a complete backwater. And I think that's where the thing about the Vancouver scene, too, that people we're like, well, if you want to do something, you better start traveling, right? And uh, we made a decision that um, uh, Los Angeles was a hell of a lot closer than Toronto. So we started driving, you know, and the weather was a hell of a lot nicer too, right? So yeah, so we just started traveling up and down the coast. Um, and that's what kind of made us, I'd say. You know, you talk, you, we were talking a lot about, about your position as cultural ambassadors, um, to, to quote Dave, Greg. Um, there is this sort of push-pull in a lot of DOA's songs and and presentation between a a a fierce criticism of government, but also this weird—I'm not going to say nationalism, but a a a, a patriotic <laughs> pride in Canada. Can you yeah. talk a little bit about that sort of that that dialectic there? Yeah, I think that's really interesting because we we said, well, we got to get part of the thing. You know, every band does this. So, well. How do we get known? How do we get bigger? Uh, how do we get more fans? You know, whatever the whatever the people in the bands say, and uh, and we thought like you know yeah you gotta know the identity. So then, so I said like okay well you know when you think of New York City you think of uh, the New York Dolls uh, for example right you know other great bands too right but when you think of London this going back you know seventy eight eighty eighty two you think of the Sex Pistols and then the other one we really hit upon we said. When you think of Texas, you think of ZZ Top, right? Yeah. They, they represented Texas so well, and the way they dressed, you know, the cowboy hats and, the, you know, the hangers of honor were like, oh, I don't know, like, um, but whatever, you know, like Texans that rode motorcycles. and uh, But they had an identity. So then we said, okay, well, we started wearing these Mac jackets, like, you know, like the, the red and white jackets and cut off the sleeve like a workman's jacket. And like, okay, yeah, that's pretty good. And then I think that's where people in Seattle saw that. And that's a whole, the Mac jacket grunge thing. That one guy said to me, oh, that's where they sold it from DOA, blah, 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 whatever. That makes sense. Doug, Donut, right. from, Doug Donut from Death Sentence said that, right? And uh, yeah. Um, but then we thought, well, let's take it further. Then we started incorporating the hockey sticks and uh, um, and the hockey jerseys. Right? And then uh, we had one show down in uh, Austin. And we had it in a big club. We set up a hockey, uh, ball hockey game on the floor uh, between DOA and a bunch of Texans. Uh, let's just say it was over like pretty quickly. Uh, There's no Texans playing for the Dallas Stars, put it that way, right? So <laughs> anyway, anyway, so we realized that this is a, contributed to our Canadian identity. And then we did the album Two North Strong and Free. Right. And it has yeah. something like the 51st State. Which and is all our like, stars are overweight. Yeah. Uh, exactly, Bachman turned overdrive. We're thinking specifically Randy and Fred and that that crew, and uh, 
in Canada, it was like a lot less glamorous than the entertainment from London or from uh, Los Angeles or New York. We weren't glamorous. Yeah. Uh, that was for damn sure, right? So, no, your exports uh, at the time were like John Candy, Dan Aykroyd, and it's like this is right, who you right, were, right, we, yeah. we were getting. We were getting no Rachel McAdams from you guys. <laughs> no, uh, it's like, uh, and I think playing into that like it really helped the identity because you had the fierce music um, and the politics, but you also had the humor, yeah. and I think that was like a re- those are three really important, the three most important things about DOA politics being obnoxiously loud and trying to be funny. Right. And that was, that was what drew me uh, initially. So it was almost, it was almost a, uh, a branding conversation before we had such a term. <laughs> I suppose so. Yeah. Interesting. I, wow. I mean, uh, I, I guess I could have been a billionaire on wall street if I had just uh, taken that approach there. Right. So <laughs> you need to franchise it out. Get a couple more <laughs> Canadian bands going down there. Um, don't let me, don't you worry about blank. Let me worry about blank. Yeah. If, well, if you're a future on a fan, I think, I think a lot of like Canadian identity for me as a young person was like just defined as what is an American. And then so like finding DOA was such a huge thing for me because it was suddenly like, oh shit, hardcore was coined by like, or like titularly coined at least. Yeah. By a Canadian band, yeah. You know, and like, and then like, you know, for, for finding out, you know, how important DOA was to the whole thing. It was like, oh shit, this is like, you know, really emboldened my kind of like love of this music. And, you know, and I think it was such an important band for bands from here because you were the first band that got out, you know, like everyone. Yeah. I think the the thing was that, uh, cause we were adventurous. Um, and I'd say that the, the two bands that did the most early trekking and kind of set up the scene or like, Played the first shows, whatever. We're also in Black Fly, mm. and we're we're good pals with those uh, guys. And then uh, and Chuck uh, Dukowski generally did the booking or help with and stuff like that. So him and I would trade notes about, oh, don't go to Sacramento, you'll get ripped off by this guy, or or if you end up here in uh, um, Portland, this guy's okay. He'll you know you'll get a hundred bucks in summer of stay. That, that so we trade notes about who to trust and who not to trust. And then because we were so early that uh, I found that we would play uh, shows where people had never seen a punk rock show before, right? Mm -hmm. In the United States or parts of Canada. And, um, and we come back the next and there'd be bands would form after having seen, and we could tell which band had been there first because we get back to a town a second time, the opening bands would sound like black flag. So obviously they had got there first and uh-huh. we go to other town. The bands would sound a little bit like DOA. That meant that we had been there before them type thing. Right. Yes. So it was just kind of an odd thing. Right. It, just, it kind of worked out that, uh, I, I mean, I, I love those guys. They were like, and all the lineups were all great. All the singers and, you know, but lots of great stuff. So I said, still love seeing them play when they, whatever lineup they come out with. Right. So yeah. what was the worst place you ever stayed? Um, but besides jail, <laughs> well, yeah, definitely not jail. <laughs> jail probably takes the cake, but I mean, like, <laughs> that, somewhere where you could great. leave if you um, if you wanted to. There we are, yeah, <laughs> yeah. Um, the worst place you ever stayed. God, there's that's a pretty long. How long is your podcast? So, <laughs> you know, as long uh, as you want, but like, it's funny because like I can remember 
every shitty place I've stayed, and obviously you've stayed probably in more shitty places than I have over the years, but I mean, like, those places stay with you. I remember the floor we slept on in the Czech Republic that was the hardest floor right. I ever slept on. Like, I don't know why that concrete was so much harder than any other concrete I've slept on, but for some reason... Listen, yeah, I'm a rank amateur here. You guys have toured so much more than I have, but we did, Egghead did record in a house in Westchester, Pennsylvania, where it, it was a real punk house where the owners uh, would take their tattoo bandages off and stick them on the wall. <laughs> it was oh, like if you the, know what? It, the entire building was made of hepatitis. It was terrifying. But I'm sorry, Joe, okay. go ahead. We had a place like that in Oslo, Norway. There's a, a squat there called uh, The Blitz. Uh, really famous. So it was around in the eighties. It's still going. Um, and uh, so these kids, uh, you know, 22 or whatever, they put on the show. The show was okay. It was pretty good. And then I said, Oh, where are we going to stay? Right. And uh, I said, Oh, we, we have a house. Don't worry. And they were getting like more and more hammered as the evening was going on at, you know, getting pretty incoherent by the time that uh, was closing time. And, uh, and it just, uh, uh, I went like, uh, I searched, smell the rat so i went like uh, i said to the rest guys you know what uh, i volunteer to uh, stay in the van tonight I'll, I'll make sure the stuff doesn't get ripped off i'll stay here right so and uh, they went oh okay well it's okay and they they trooped off uh uh we left the van parked in front of the venue and uh about eight thirty in the morning i could hear them grumbling coming down the fucking street and was just like uh you know the toilets the seats have been ripped off uh uh uh, the guy who ran the thing says, oh, can I stay in, in this room with you guys? My room's all full of bed bugs and uh, <laughs> 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 so shit like that. And they're all, and I'm looking at them, at them. I go, oh, my God, that's terrible, guys. I'm, I'm so sorry, right? So, And they're going, like, that's not like, and Patty, our drummer, goes like, fuck, if I hear Joe saying he's going to stay in the van again, I know he's smelling a rat, so I'm not going to that place. <laughs> <laughs> I think the typical thing was that, that I always go like, uh, it's a combination of places. Is that the the, the owner of the house said that you have a few questions? So, oh yeah, we've had a long road trip. We crash it, crash your house, uh, and go, oh yeah, sure, sure. I got lots of room, man. And, and you're not going to have a rager all night, are you? Oh no, no, man. It, it'd be like quiet, right? So. So as soon as the band agrees to stay, then the party moves over to that house, right? <laughs> and there's a rager all night, and we'll just the stereo crank. And then you go down to the basement, and they say, oh, you can sleep here, and it's on a concrete floor. And uh, basically, you know, you want a pillow, just pull up like a, a kitty litter box that hasn't been changed in six months. <laughs> that's, what, that's what you get. <laughs> yeah, we, we stayed in the house one time. And the cat just peed on our bass player. And so we end up all just sleeping in the van. Like all of us were just like, let's just go. Not on your amp, not on the bass, on your bass player. On poor Sandy. She's like, we're like, Sandy, get up, get up, get up. Because you can see the cat doing it. And she's like, what, what, what? Oh, no. And we're like, let's just go to the van. All of us sleep in the van. (laughs) Oh, oh, oh dear. Oh. That cat owned the place, you know. We were, we were squatting, you know, like we we had no right to be there. <laughs> cat was marking his territory even further, right? So yeah, absolutely. So no, it's it's amazing how you know you guys establish that. Like you guys are the guys that go out there. It's funny because like people come on this podcast, they play in other bands, and like you would like on the East Coast, and like you'd have to wait for a promoter to reach out to you. You'd have to wait for all this sort of like red tape to kind of be brought into the music industry, but. Right. 
you guys kind of are in your black flag, obviously, as you mentioned, but you guys are the guys that are going around staying on people's floors and kind of like, like be, be realizing like you can build a scene, you can build, you yeah, can do this. That would, yeah, the template, and then, yeah. And you know what? We have a lot, of, it was a lot of fun doing it, right? I mean, not every night was, was great and not every gig was great, you know, but it's like, uh, um, obviously we came back for more. I think I've done over 4,000 shows in my life. So, um, I, I guess another thing to say, I'm a sucker for punishment. So, yeah, <laughs> <laughs> yeah I've, I've, I definitely feel that's part of it is like sort of this yeah. idea that like there's a gambling aspect to it. Like every night you don't know. Oh yeah. Out. Yeah. You know what? Yeah. Uh, I rolled the dice and shit came up snake eyes again. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> <laughs> At least you have a night on the Every Once in a while floor. you'll find a fan with like, you'll find a fan with like wealthy parents though. And yeah. they're like, Oh, come in. We just, they, we just got a new sectional in the living room. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> and they, they, we had that happen got, like twice. And, uh, and it was bliss. <laughs> well, they, they take you down. They got a beautiful place. Uh, they cook up food. They say there's a liquor cabinet. Help yourself. Right. It's like, <laughs> and everybody, everybody in the band's going like, I died in one day. <laughs> you know, a you know finished you, basement. <laughs> you know, when you go to the punk person's house, though, and it's super nice and they're not living with their parents, that something's fishy. Like, how many times have we went up staying at some dude's house and been like, oh, they're a drug dealer? Of yeah, course. Coke like, money. How much right. would you be able to afford money. this? <laughs> oh, here's okay. Here's one for you. Okay. Uh, it was a beautiful place. Uh, we only ever played in uh, Serbia one time. It took us about four or five hours to get through the get through the border. They wouldn't let us in. Didn't have a permit, so we left the the crew and the van and all the gear. Uh, they stayed in Hungary. Uh, so, and we ducked down with our guitars and snuck through the border. And we'd ordered a cab, and we ran. I said, guys, we gotta go fast, but don't run, right? And we kind of went. We went with one guitar, bass, and. Uh, drum sticks and a bass drum pedal and uh and ducked down in this car in parking lot and this cab driver picked us up right and uh drove 150k uh down to novo uh Grisica or something like that and no uh, that yeah yeah no yeah no yeah, yeah. no Sad. that's it and um so after the show the show was great uh and uh except when we played america the beautiful because it, the americans had bombed uh Bomb Serbia. So when we played America the Beautiful, the show was going fantastic. People really got all DOA's never been here. The whole crowd stopped and looked at us, stared at us. Because America, home of the free, America, blah, blah, blah. They, you know, and uh, and I'm looking at that guys, well, how do we get out of this? Think, well, it's a two-minute song. We better just bring shit up type thing, right? And uh, start playing all went well. So anyway, so we so what were we going to say? He says, oh, we have like a bed and breakfast arranged for you. So we're driving up the hill uh, out of town and uh, the fence is getting higher and higher. So it looks like the fences are the height of like you would have around, uh, not that I've hung, hung out there, but I watched Breaking Bad, but around like a Mexican drug cartel house, right? You have 10, 12 foot high house yeah. fences. And we get to one and say, you guys can stay here. And uh, they let us in. There's nobody there. It's a mansion. It's got like a reflecting pond in the backyard that's like 100 feet long. It's got its own basketball court, uh, marble staircase up to the rooms we're standing. That was like 12 feet wide. There's bottles of wine. Now here's, so there's, here's the food. Uh, we'll pick up at 9 o'clock and drive you back up to the border, right? And uh, we're going to, huh, 
Okay, so he stayed there. We found out later that was the home of Serbia's biggest drug dealer <laughs> who had just been arrested and the government had seized the property, didn't know what to do with it. So someone was at a bed and breakfast, right? So we're going like, well, if we had known that, we spent the entire night digging out to see where he stashed all the cash, right? Instead, <laughs> 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 we, we got away from there. Well, we'll never get back in there again, right? So, yeah. <laughs> spend the whole night prying up the floorboards, <laughs> going into the toilet tanks. Oh, yeah. The place would have been a wreck. We were going through everything until dawn, right? So. <laughs> <laughs> yeah we played that we played a festival there one time called uh, uh i think it's called the exit festival it was called exit from 10 years of madness festival yeah i think we just missed we came in a day early that was i know the one you mean yeah the same guy run the show. yeah yeah like yeah, he must have been because he was like probably i think i even talked to him about you guys he was like a huge punk fan like love yep. usker do mission of burma like like all of them yeah actually it's funny oh, it was great oh go on sorry Oh, no, no, no. It was great. It was a, 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 the people there are great. I'd, I'd love to go back there and play. Right, so. Yeah, no, definitely. It's funny. Bob Mould was on uh, not too long ago, and he talked about when they went to, they got your number from Black Flag and yeah. rolled into town, and you guys hooked them up with a place to stay, and we're giving them all this, I think, I think steaks or something, like meat, that, like, at, you had groceries that you were passing up to them, like they were, like, squatting in some spot almost, he said. Probably, uh, I don't know where they were. They're probably staying down by uh, Dave's place down in Gastown or something like that. I'm not sure. Um, hmm, that's interesting. I remember that Husker Du came to us with to Reno, and my friend uh, Cliff Barnell, uh, he used to do all the shows there in the early days. And uh, so I phoned him and I said, uh, Yeah, Cliff, uh, yeah, we can play on the, the 15th of July or whatever it was. And uh, but we're bringing this band from Minneapolis with us. And he says, okay, cool. I can give him some money. What's the name of them? I said, well, they're called Husker Du. And so when we got to Reno, uh, Cliff had written down, and I have a poster with this on, it was DOA, and then the opening band was Who Screwed You? <laughs> written out phonetically. <laughs> <laughs> and I, I looked at those guys, and I go, looks like you guys got a new band name. How you like it? <laughs> <laughs> Yeah, Bob's great. All those guys were great. They, they were fantastic to play with. Like uh, the first time we went there, um, Minneapolis, we played Seventh Street Entry, and Who's Could Do opened up. You're talking like 1980 or something like that, and uh, they played uh, Lion Speak Record from start to finish, and then played the songs Statues as a an encore or whatever. Right? It's fantastic. Mm -hmm. Right? So. So speaking about that, when we go when we actually start doing some shows, then when uh, DOA for the first time, we'll play the Hardcore One record from start to finish. Oh, that's and, awesome. uh, yeah, uh, but people don't tell people not to worry. Uh, we'll play some more songs because the record's only actually 18 minutes long. <laughs> <laughs> it's more like an EP. <laughs> uh, well, uh, this has been amazing, both of you. And I don't want to keep you both because we are talking late into the night. And uh, if you guys are busy and stuff, we can we can wrap up whenever. But I, I want you both to know that you guys are always welcome here. And John, it has been an yeah, honor great. to do this with you. Oh, this is. I been... guess I'll put in a. I'll put in a plug. Thank you for that. I'll put in a plug for the reissue of uh, a hardcore one. So it's got three bonus tracks, three early singles on it, uh, like "Fucked Up Ronnie," "Disco Sucks," and "The Original Prisoner." And it's got this 12-page uh, booklet inside the jacket 
that um, I wrote a big thing about my take on the origins of hardcore and we put in a bunch of pictures and posters and stuff like that people never seen before right so mm-hmm. so that's are you guys putting that out stuff. on your own yep i put that on sudden death records yep on sudden so, death fantastic yeah yeah it's um it's such a i got into it backwards i got into it uh, i don't know if it was domestically available i had i had bloodied but unbowed first um yeah so, yeah cool record too right so and and so I had like you know the the cream of a hardcore eighty one and something yeah. better change off of that. Um, but when I did eventually get into hardcore eighty one, there's so much the you know, the Zeppelin cover is great. MCTFD is is fascinating. As someone who works in TV, I'm always really struck by by how potent those lyrics are. Um, right, it's just right. An incredibly fun record. But I, I love how <laughs> no matter who is in office down here, they fucked up. <laughs> <laughs> I love that. I have always loved that. I saw you guys when it was fucked up, Billy. And I, I yep. just, I, I'm just, I, it is consistent and it's always accurate. Um, and it, it's just an evergreen set of lyrics, man. <laughs> that, that, that song, I, I think I wrote it in, uh, uh, in a flea, total flea bag hotel on Lawrence street in Toronto. We we're staying up. It's like three bucks a night. And it's the winter time. There was holes in the window and, uh, uh, it was just the worst place, but I've sat in the steps. I think I wrote, wrote that. And, um, but it's been like great because it just has been like a timeless song, you know? So yeah. it's just one of, sometimes you just kind of fluke those things out. Right. So you guys stayed on Lawrence street when you were in Toronto, like the first time. Yeah. There was an old hotel at pre- Lawrence street. So that's two, two or three blocks east of young. Right uh north of young like uh, north on young Lawrence, okay right? so it wasn't Lawrence. so okay if you go uh i guess it's parallel with young but two or three blocks just east oh like church, really parallel church maybe or it might have been church okay so, sure yeah, we arrived there in a motorhome okay <laughs> uh like a drive-through like you just delivered it to toronto and uh, we didn't have our stay so we found the sweet bag motel and it was like two bucks a head per night so yeah. we stayed there for about two weeks till we found like uh uh, a house up on Edwin Avenue that we could rent. We stayed there for about five months type thing. Toronto must have been so different then. Like, you know, reading um, Liz Worth's book, Treat Me Like Dirt, and just hearing about like how Queen Street was basically opened up by punk. Like it was when the punk started going down there and playing that you had yep. all those clubs really start. Like it, it was like a, a one horse town back then. Yeah, it was interesting. I mean, we went to... Oh God, we played that there was this club on Young Street, not too far from Maple Old original Maple Leaf Gardens. David's? Uh it was called the Gasworks. Oh, the Gasworks, yeah. Yeah. I've heard of the yeah. Gasworks. Immortalized in Wayne's World. They do that. That's, of course. Okay. That's why I've heard of the but dork. Yeah. <laughs> there was a kind of, oh God, now it escapes me. There was a kind of a well known great god of it. So it was Gatto was yeah. playing. Yeah. Okay. And uh, we went in to have a beer and uh Godovitz was kind of a John, like a, a famous uh, Ontario Canadian rock band at the time, right? You know, and, uh, he never big, got really big, but fairly significant in their own what, way. Was it "You're a Strange Animal" his song? "You're a Strange Animal." I got no. To that's um, uh, oh, who I know, I know exactly the song you're talking. That was an early new wave hit. Yeah. No, they're a bit more rock than that, but they were playing the Gasworks, and we got a beer. And then Greg Godovitz uh, said, oh, okay, now we're going to do our punk rock set, right? And they 
played about four songs that were not punk rock, but maybe slightly faster. And when they finished that, I went up to the stage and I said, uh, hey, uh, man, uh, we're actually a punk rock band. Why don't you give us a chance to we'll get up and play? And the guy, the guy had never seen it before. So they handed over all their instruments. <laughs> and we got, uh, got up and played. And, I, you know, about three or four songs later, we left to kind of a chorus of booze from the, from the rock and roll crowd. <laughs> so that was our first, our first show in Toronto. Well, Toronto, like even the punk stuff here was like pretty rocky. Like there's not like you guys must have been so much heavier and and more aggressive than like, you know, the Biotones are aggressive, but like Teenage Head and, yeah. and, and all that stuff is like, it's amazing. I love it, but it's not like, it's, power it's pop. certainly not. Yeah, it's not hardcore. Yeah. No. It's good power yeah. pop, but it's power pop. Yeah. 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 We did lots of shows. I was good. Good buddies with, uh, with the ugly. They were a good yeah. band. Right. Yeah. Yeah. So. Um, yeah, it was different. And I think um, one of the things that was about Toronto, same thing about New York or LA, you had a record industry there. So people kind of, I don't really blame them, but people would kind of do something that they thought that might get them a record deal. Right. Yep. So yep. maybe it was a bit more orthodox, right. Put it that way. I mean, I know New York had the crazy scene with the super great bands that came out from the original scene. Right. You know, they led to prime, of course, by the Ramones, right? So, um, uh, but I think having a record industry there does change how a band approaches it, right? Mm-hmm. You know, like if you think uh, like crazy towns that produce scenes that they're, they're like way smaller than the big centers, but it came up with a bunch of good bands, right? So, yeah, no, definitely. It's like, I think that's always been the thing with Toronto. Like there's, there's always a temptation and same with New York. Like obviously New York hardcore is different, but like, a lot of those punk bands are, are, are rock bands, but anyway, I could punish yeah. you forever, Joe. Thank you. Okay. Um, right. Okay. Uh, thanks sir. Thanks for having me on. And, uh, yeah. And, uh, John, John, good chat with you as well. Right. So this was a real honor, man. This was a real honor. Thanks for right, Damien. Thanks up. for having me. What's so special about hero bread, soft, fluffy, and delicious breads, buns, and tortillas. Hero Bread serves up 0 to 1 grams of net carbs, 5 to 11 grams of protein, and high fiber in every delicious serving. Made with natural ingredients, Hero Bread supports gut health, promotes weight management, and helps maintain blood sugar. Hero also drops other limited edition ultra-low net carb goodies like rich flaky croissants and buttery brioche slider rolls. Head to Hero.co to shop today.